Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It's going to be a wonderful day just because I'm going to bring on David Wheaton in just a minute. And then Chris Palmer is going to be joining me, the Greek geek. I love that guy. And then the hour two is going to be the conclusion of our prayer series. Dr. Peter Kapsher and I are going to be looking over what's been going on the last six months, playing some highlights, some clips, and getting ready for what's next. So that's all coming up today. So glad you're with me. I hope you've had a wonderful day so far. I'm going to um, get back into our study of Genesis. We are, I don't even know what lesson we're on, but it's a lot of them. We're already in, uh, moving into Genesis 49. And we're going to do a little review and then move on. So uh, David Wheaton is again my uh, my teacher, my, my friend, my, uh, my uh, partner in this uh, study of Genesis. He is at the ChristianWorldview.org. You can always go over there to check him out. Make sure you listen to his radio show and check his podcast and buy his books and Read his blog. David, welcome. Good to be with you, Bill. I thought you were going to say partner in crime there for a second. Well, no, I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> but as I was reading Genesis 46, just to brush up on today, I was reminding myself how I often have to go back and brush up on pronouncing names of the descendants. Yeah. Yeah. It's one thing to say them, to read them. It's another thing to say them out loud. <laughs> and, on um, radio. You're, you're right. Yeah. So anyway, let's do, uh, do a little bit of... Uh, um, work on what we did last time. Let's just do a little reminder of Genesis 46 and 47, and we'll move on from there. Yeah, so that's what we talked about last time, and just in case there are listeners who didn't hear that uh, conversation we had, this is where Joseph, one of the sons of the, one of the patriarchs, so you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the patriarch. You know, Jacob and Joseph's brothers are all back in the land of Canaan, which is the present-day Israel, and there's a terrible famine, and they come down to to Egypt, and because they hear there's food in Egypt, and little did they know that they had the brother they had sold into slavery in Egypt, Joseph, the favored son, is not dead. Not only is he not dead, but he's risen to number two in the land under Pharaoh. Just an amazing, you know, worst to first finish for him. But they don't recognize him, and Joseph kind of tests his brothers. Of course, Joseph recognizes them right away, but Joseph doesn't look like the, a Canaanite anymore. He looks like an Egyptian with his rank and so forth. But eventually Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and they are just in complete and utter shock what has be happened to this teenage brother that they sold uh, into slavery in Egypt. They thought they were getting rid of him, never to see him again. They lied to their father about it, and they thought he was long gone. And so you can imagine the shock they had when, they, when, when Joseph reveals himself. I'm, I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. They don't even know how to speak. But then Joseph right away says— don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are still five more years to go. God sent me, not not you, God sent me before you mm. to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. And he goes on to just basically say, I mean, the obvious thing to say is you guys are in major trouble. I have power now. You guys are going to prison and I'm going to get retribution, revenge, whatever. 
he doesn't do that. He says not only does he not do that, he tells them not even to blame themselves because God ordained that this is the way that Joseph would end up in Egypt to be able to save his own family back in, in Canaan. This is the, the big lesson we talked about last time was this tension between our responsibility, man's responsibility for our decisions and actions and everything we do, and yet at the same time, here God is sovereignly, that means he controls, he causes or allows everything that happens to happen. And so there's this tension here, which is impossible for our human minds to understand, but the Bible teaches us throughout that God is in control of the movement of history. And so Joseph is reiterating this to his brothers. You know, God didn't restrain—he just chose, in this instance, not to restrain his brother's sinfulness in selling men to, to slavery. He chose not to restrain their hatred for Joseph. He allowed them to sell Joseph into slavery— because God had a higher plan, he had determined that Joseph was going to be the one to go to Egypt to accomplish his will and all the little circumstances along the way. So just to conclude, Joseph's father, Jacob, the third patriarch, uh, and then his brothers and the rest of his family, about 70 of them or 75 or so, all moved down to Egypt. He invites them all down to Egypt to avoid the famine, live in Egypt. Now, this is going out of the promised land for God's chosen people. Now, this is a big deal. And Joseph and Pharaoh give them the best of the land, and he give, they give them the best of the land away from the mainstream of Egyptian society because Joseph knows that he doesn't want his family intermingling uh, too much with the Egyptian culture because he knows that would kind of lead them away, that would lead them to compromise away from the one true God. So they come to Egypt, they dwell there, they're in the land, and uh, that's where we left off last time. I like it. So now are we in 48? We're in 48, yes. Genesis 48. So maybe we can talk a little bit more about why Jacob reiterated to Joseph God's covenant with Abraham. So that's been a thread through all our yeah. conversations over the last year, is that this keeps on coming up, uh, the promise or the covenant that God first made with Abraham, the first patriarch. And you remember, Abraham, by the way, was, was saved. Was It says in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned unto him to, for righteousness. In other words, when God made these promises to Abraham, that would be Jacob's grandfather, you know, long, long time ago, uh, about, about you, you'll be, you're going to have a land of your own, which is the promised land, land of Canaan, modern-day Israel. You're going to have that land, and there's going to be seed. There's going to be lots of descendants that come out of you, and there's also going to be a blessing on you. Those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. So land seed and blessing. This was the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham. It's irrevocable. And so this covenant has been repeated over and over again, first with Abraham, and then with Abraham's son Isaac, and then with Isaac's son Jacob. And this is what happens in Genesis 40. Here we are at the end of Genesis now, and the, 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 the family of Jacob is now moving into Egypt away from the promised land. So they're probably thinking, well, maybe this isn't going to happen. Maybe we aren't going to have a land. We're going down to Egypt. This isn't going to happen. But it all of a sudden was told, God told him, he, he said, behold, uh, he's old, Jacob's old, and he's told, he's lying on his, kind of his deathbed, what he thinks is his deathbed. And he says, your son Joseph has come to you, and Jacob, or now he's called Israel, collected his strength and sat up in his bed then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And this was decades ago. 
And he said to me, I will make you fruitful and numerous. Again, a, re a repetition of this Abrahamic covenant. I'll make you fruitful and numerous. Uh, and I will make you a multitude of peoples. And I will give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. So here Jacob is in Egypt, still remembering this promise, this covenant from God. And he never gives up faith in it. And it's actually mentioned in the New Testament in Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith chapter, where these these patriarchs, these these heroes of the faith, even though they they don't receive the promises that God makes for them, they still believe God. And the lesson here for us is the same. God makes promises in his words, and we don't necessarily see the fulfillment of them all the time, sometimes not even in our lifetime. But this is God's test for us. Do we believe God at his word? And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Joseph, his son, are great examples to us of believing God at his word. Really nicely explained, David. That was, uh, I, I think I'm going to take a break right now, because I think what we're going to cover next is going to require a little bit more time and space. So okay. David Wheaton, of course, is my guest as we continue our study on the book of Genesis and why the book is most relevant for today. We are studying Genesis 48 and 49 today. If you have your Bibles open, and if you don't, I suggest you do. We'll be right back. Always go to thechristianworldview.org to learn more about David, his radio program, events, his store, and everything else David Wheaton related. Go to thechristianworldview.org. All right, David, as we continue our study in chapter 48, a question I have for you is about J uh, Jacob and why did he want to place his firstborn blessing on Joseph's younger son Ephraim than the older son Manasseh? Yeah, we we've seen this frequently throughout. Yeah, it is. It's it's like you know you 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 back at the time the cultural norm was to you the the firstborn gets the bulk majority of the blessing and the inheritance and all that. Well, this is sort of ironic how this happens, by the way, because again Jacob is you know near death, he's at the end of his life, so you have to kind of picture it in your mind here. He's either in bed or maybe sitting in a chair. His favorite son, Joseph, now second in command of the land, comes to him. He's told his father's not doing well. So Joseph comes to him with Joseph's two sons, who are named Manasseh, his firstborn, and his secondborn is named Ephraim. And so he walks up to his father, and he has Manasseh, his firstborn, on, on Joseph's left side, and he's got his secondborn, Ephraim, on his right side. So as he approaches Joseph or Jacob, his father, he's expecting— Jacob to put his right hand, because he's facing him, on his older son. The right hand was the symbol of authority. That was the main, the main hand of blessing for the firstborn. And so the irony is, you remember back in the story of Jacob when he was younger, remember the little, what, not the little, the, the big deal that happened with him and his brother Esau, that they, Jacob sort of deceptively, deceitfully stole the birthright from his older brother Esau, mm -hmm. when they came to their father Isaac, and it's sort of there's almost like a little bit, almost like a little irony or humor here, in that Jacob actually asks 
his son Joseph to clarify which son is which, because he might remember <laughs> back to the day when he was growing up when he deceived his own father the same way. So that there's that little piece in there. Mm-hmm. But he, so he comes up, and surprisingly, what what his father Jacob does is he doesn't extend his right hand straight forward to the older son Manasseh. He crosses his arms over in front of him. So he's got his right hand now on the younger Ephraim, his left hand on Manasseh. And, and Joseph doesn't like this, by the way. He's think this is not right. This is my older son, Manasseh. I want the main blessing to go to him. But again, God's purposes are, are at work. It doesn't even actually explain why, but what would happen as a result of these two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, um, Ephraim getting the main blessing, even being the younger, would turn out to be true. As, as, it, as it came out, these are the, would turn out to be the 12 tribes of, of Israel. Most people have heard Ephraim and Manasseh are tribes of Israel. Well, the tribe of Ephraim became a very prominent tribe in Israel. Matter of fact, it was an alternate name uh, for the the northern kingdom. And so he, this this takes place. This interesting dynamic takes place in this blessing. It's flipped once again. We're not even told why. But I think there's also a lesson here, uh, just for today, as I, as I read this bill, is that the blessing of a father toward his children and grandchildren is is a is a prayer. There's nothing magical here, but it was it was a prayer, a hope, a wish for their future. And I think parents and grandparents really should think about prioritizing what the legacy they're leaving and what the legacy they want for their children and grandchildren. You know, a lot of parents and grandparents get very caught up and it's very easy to do. And you know, how are my kids going to be educated? Where, what are they going to go to the best schools? Are they going to have a good education? And what is their career going to be? We want to be proud of them. We want to have a good job. Uh, we want them to get married and we want, well, for sure we want grandchildren, we want those to appear in the front of our Christmas card and all that. And there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. But here in this story, we see the importance of the blessing, like what the what what their spiritual legacy is going to be, and so it's so important for parents and grandparents to be teaching their children first of all to love and honor and worship God. That's the point of our life. That's far more important than getting a good good education. Far more important than having a great high paying career. That we are we live our lives uh, in in the purpose for which we were created to know, honor, and worship God. That's number one. Number two is that children should honor their parents as Joseph did. Joseph honored his father all the way along, along, and there was great, there was great blessing for that. That is more important than education, career, and anything else. Those two things, to to love God and to honor our parents, those are things that parents and grandparents, those are the values above everything else that need to be communicated to our children and grandchildren. Well said, David. The idea of being blessed by your father, by your grandfather, pretty significant mm-hmm. in the life of a child. It, it is. I mean, what what greater thing than that? When you have a a father or grandfather who who loves and honors God, whose priority is for his children and grandchildren to do the same, and there's a blessing. I mean, who doesn't want to have blessing in life? Who wants to live their life, you know, as a rebel and suffer the consequences? And, and that that theme of God blesses obedience. That doesn't mean obedience, uh, blessing comes without trial, but because look at the life of Joseph. Look at the trials he had in his life. But Joseph's life was continually blessed because he obeyed and followed God, whereas as we're going to see as we talk about some of Joseph's brothers, because they made very sinful decisions, it wasn't the case. There was consequence uh, for them. It's a very powerful invitation, isn't it? 
Can I it is. pray for you? Can I bless you? Uh, it is. Very, very seldom will someone refuse that. It's sort of been lost today. I agree. You know, we, we, how, do we talk about, you know, can we can we bless our children and grand, grandchildren? Again, there's nothing magical about this, but we, we want to raise them in such a way that they honor us, they honor God, so we want to have our blessing, our future blessing upon their life. And I think God honors that. So it's not magical, but there's something spiritual and divine about it that I think God honors. Yeah, and you're speaking truth over somebody's life out loud. Right. It's, it's a good thing to speak and a great thing to hear. Very much. Yeah. And, and we see that. We, and we see that actually the next chapter, which I think segues into yeah, Genesis let's, 49. Let's jump into that. Is that, yeah, well, then Jacob starts going through. Uh, it, it turns from blessing into more prophecies. What What's going to happen? Uh, whether he was just compelled by the Holy Spirit, it, it doesn't say. But he starts going through this almost, in Genesis 49, read it, this like almost poetic um chapter where he he talks about each of his children, each of his sons, and then these would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and he goes through each one and it, about what's going to happen with his sons. And in the, in the footnote in, in the Bible I have, it says something interesting. I'll just quote it. It says, with Judah, with his sons, Judah and Joseph, receiving the most attention in the list of the 12, Jacob's blessing portrayed their future history of each son. And this is interesting seemingly based on their characters up to that time. And so I think the lesson here as you read this, the relevancy is each of us are writing the book of our lives every single day with the decisions we make, for better or for worse. In other words, our character, our choices, uh, whether we choose righteousness or sin, does determine what kind of life we have. And not only does it affect the kind of life we have, but it affects our descendants as well. You know, we just met with a, a pastor friend of ours uh, yesterday who was just in town briefly, and he had said that he didn't know till recently that he came from a family of pastors, like past generations, but he had no idea because there was a grandfather, his own grandfather, a great-grandfather, was an atheist. So there's a family of pastors, one of their sons was an atheist, and that affected the whole line of his family. And there was all kinds of sin and dif- dysfunction as a result of that one atheist and the influence he had on his own children and their children and so forth. And all of a sudden that cycle was broken with with this young man now being a pastor, but he didn't know it. And it just goes to show you that the decisions, the sinful decisions made, or the the good decisions made to honor God, really don't—they affect us, but they also affect those that come after us. Now, of course, we're all responsible, accountable for, for the own sinful decisions we make, but there are ramifications of the decisions we make, for better or for worse— uh, on those who come after this. And that's what we see in this this chapter 49. And I'll just give you one example, Bill. Um, look at the example of, of the firstborn, uh, Reuben. He was the firstborn of Jacob. Uh, he was the son of Leah. And if you remember back earlier, about 12, 13 chapters ago, it was Reuben that was the one that actually committed adultery with one of Jacob's concubines, Bilhah. I don't know if you remember that. Mm-hmm. And in this prophecy concerning Reuben, he's the first one he mentions, he says, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. But then he goes into verse 4, 40, verse, uh, chapter 49, uncontrollable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Now, this sin that Reuben did, adultery with one of Jacob's four wives, 
was perhaps forgiven by Jacob, but it was never forgotten, and it was never without consequence, and, and, and it led to negative consequences, you know, here at the end of Jacob's life and, and for Reuben's and his descendants' future. It's not that, that God wouldn't save any out of Reuben's family, but there were negative consequences for the sinful decision that Reuben made. Mm-hmm. David, what was the prophecy for Joseph? Well, the prophecy for Joseph, as it was just, just the opposite. It was incredibly uh, blessed. Matter of fact, that word blessing was used all throughout. I mean, it devotes five or six verses to Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful a branch. This is verse 20 through 22 through 26, chapter 49. A fruitful branch by a spring. Its branches hang over a wall. Um, it goes down to say, by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father has surpassed the blessing. I mean, it's just the word is being repeated over and over and over again because Joseph was the one who made decisions from the time he was a young man that he was going to honor his father and he was going to honor God, and he wasn't a sinless man by any means, uh, but he was one whose heart was right toward God, and there was blessing as a result of that to him and to his descendants. Mm. All right, why does Jacob specify his burial place with Leah instead of Rachel, which, of course, was his favorite wife? Right, and it's never good to have a favorite wife. That term really should <laughs> should really come up. But anyway, that being said, that was sort of done back then. But um, yeah, so Rachel was his beloved wife. He was the one that he thought he was marrying back when he was with Uncle Laban, but Laban tricked him and he married uh, Rachel's older sister Leah first. Um, but when he dies, Jacob, again, now he's been in the land of Egypt for, I'm not sure, 20-plus years probably at this point. Um, he, he gives instructions. He does not want to be buried. He's thinking back to that covenant again. I, he, he, it's the promised land. It's land, seed, and blessing. Abrahamic covenant, his grandfather. He instructs Joseph after he dies that he wants to be buried back in Canaan. But not only that, he wants to be buried alongside his grandfather and grandmother, Abraham and Sarah, his father and mother, Isaac and Rebekah. And that means he's going to be married next to Leah, not next to his quote-unquote favorite wife, Rachel, who died giving childbirth to one of his brothers, ben, or um, to his son, Benjamin. And so this is significant that you see Jacob's priorities, again, at the end of his life. It's not about necessarily being with his favorite wife in, in burial. It's about what's more important than that is being with one of his wives, Leah, uh, who he had many children with. But the bigger thing was being near that covenant blessing promise that God had given with him. He wanted to be there in the promised land next to his grandfather, his father, and be right there for eternity. Because the Jews weren't going to return to Egypt, Bill, for 400 years. Now they're in Egypt. And so Jacob's looking ahead. And again, by faith, faith and trust in God's promises, he wants to be back in the land of Canaan where God promised him he would be and which would give to his descendants. You're a great brother and a radio pro. We're out of time, and you exactly know it's time to go. Thank you, David. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, right. David Wheaton's been my guest. Go to thechristianworldview.org, and we'll take a short break. When we come back, Chris Palmer will be joining me, the Greek geek. Can't wait. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. 
All right, we know that all Scripture is God-breathed, but there are some strange verses. And my guest, Chris Palmer, has uh, written a book that examines 52 of the oddest verses in the New Testament. He um, is a frequent guest on the show. He's a founder and pastor of Light of Today Church in Novi, Michigan, and founder of Chris Palmer Ministries. He's authored seven books. He calls himself the Greek geek. Having him on the show gives me a feeling of Makarios. How am I doing, Chris? It sounded great. Your pronunciation gets better every time. <laughs> I'm working on it. Uh, every every time you come on, I try to impress you, and I, I worked on that in my office for like 10 minutes. So <laughs> you get, I mean, it's good. It gives you a feeling of happiness. It's a, it's a, it, I got it. It, it you, you did it well. Yeah. So bravo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's my Greek word for the day, makarios. Yeah. It's be sure. blessed or happy. So. Chris, let's yep. talk about this book you've got coming out in August. I cannot wait to get my hands on it, so we're going to do a little tease, a little sneak preview. <laughs> sounds good to me. It's uh, you know something that I wrote during COVID, so if you want to know how I passed the quarantine, <laughs> I was looking at the strange scriptures for the strange times we're living in. All right, let me, let me tell my listeners uh, this book that is going to be released in August. is called Strange Scriptures, Deciphering 52 Weird, Bizarre, and Curious Verses from the New Testament. And uh, my guest is Chris Palmer. So I'd love to, let's pick on a few and uh, get us started. Well, you know, um, there are indeed strange verses. I think that, you know, my qualm was that there's a lot of great devotionals out there, but they're usually, they go after those Hallmark verses. And by Hallmark, I mean, you know, the verses you see in a Hallmark card, which are the (laughs) nice ones, Mm -hmm. right? The ones you get for graduation, the ones that you get, you know, for perhaps a wedding or something like that. And um, so... My, uh, are you there? Can you hear oh, yeah. me? Oh yeah, I hear you good. Okay, so the um, so the ones that I went after are the ones that you just wouldn't see in those in those places, and perhaps the one that is really interesting is in Galatians chapter five, verse twelve, because we get this idea that the apostle Paul is a nice guy, or that you know the apostles of these really you know they speak so nice all the time. But Paul actually says this in Galatians five twelve. He says, "I wish that those troublemakers who want to mutilate, mutilate you." by circumcision would mutilate themselves. Um, and this might be one of those verses that we have a tendency to, to look over and not really think about what the Apostle Paul is saying. But he's really telling the Gentiles um, that are troubling the Galatian church, or I should say the Jewish individuals at that time that were troubling the, the Gentiles in the Galatian churches, he's telling them that they can go castrate themselves or mm. cut off their genitals. Mm. And uh, That's not in the I, Hallmark I was, card, you're right. <laughs> No, no, you know, it's not something you say to, to people, particularly, uh, imagine saying that to someone, your pastor saying that to their congregation, they'd probably yeah. be examined by the board pretty good, you know? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to put that one in a, your, your nephew's graduation uh, this, 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 this spring. So, but it's really odd that Paul is saying that. And it's very, you know, I think some of our translations, looking at what the Greek has to say, use euphemisms, meaning that they kind of play this down. They don't want this to be as harsh as the Apostle Paul is saying it. But the Greek word there, to mutilate, is actually the word that we use to prune a branch off of a tree or to cut rope, or usually it means to cut an anchor from a boat. So you get this idea of, you know, cutting something off. Mm -hmm. And he's he's really saying that. So when you look at the historical context of what he's saying, that there was this, uh, it really is interesting, it really speaks volumes about the work of Christ. Um, Because at that time you had this religious sect that was in northern Asia Minor, which was modern-day Turkey, 
and they were pagan worshipers. And the way that they thought that salvation was achieved was through self-mutilation. And they went as far as to not just circumcise themselves, but they would they would cut off their testicles to be not to be crude. Um, and what was going on at that time is Judaizers were telling the Gentiles that the only way that you could that you can receive salvation in Christ is to circumcise yourself. So it was through self-mutilation. The Apostle Paul's argument here is basically if mutilation and self-mutilation is what secures for us salvation in Christ, then you're doing it less than the pagans. So you might as well go all out and go as far as they go and cut off your genitals. Wow. Because if that's what saves us, they're more saved than we are. But thankfully, it's not what saves us. What saves us is the work of Christ in our faith, in his grace, um, and his grace that comes to us through Christ. And so he's making his point very explicitly here. Chris, you've done a great job of uh, giving us a deeper insight into Galatians 5.12. Now, good luck getting that out of your uh, mind for the rest of the day. (laughs) Hey, the Bible is is an explicit book, so, you know, I didn't write it. He wrote it. Pick it up with Paul when you get to heaven. I know. Of course. Of course. No, I think it's great. All right. uh, Let's talk about some more. This is wonderful. Yeah. So there's some other ones here that—so what I did is I wanted to move through all of the different books of the Bible. So— I was talking to Rosie prior to this, and she said, well, did you do certain ones from the Gospels? I said, I had to kind of pick and choose which ones I did in the Gospels, and some of the letters here. But maybe one that we overlook is in Philemon, uh, verse number 22. There's one chapter in Philemon. Um, where the Apostle Paul says something that we, we would never pay attention to. And it's kind of odd, because he's in prison. He's in house arrest. Um, if you've been to Rome, there's a there's a Catholic church there now that stands in the place where it's suspected that he was in his first imprisonment while he was in Rome. He was in prison twice while he was there. The first one he got out of, and the second one he didn't. So when he writes Philemon, it's the first imprisonment, and he, he ends up getting out of this one. And he says to, he says to um, Philemon, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously graciously given to you. Um, and so. This is interesting because Paul is telling Philemon, while he's in prison, prepare me the guest room. I mean, and so when you think about that, that takes tremendous faith, the fact that the Apostle Paul is there in prison. He's on house arrest. He hasn't really gotten his, his uh, you know, adjudicated for what he had done. And he's telling them, first of all, make ready. This is in the imperative mood in the Greek, which means it's, it's very strong. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. He's telling them. Get ready and make do this. This is not a suggestion. Make all the plans to do this. And he says, because I'm hoping to get out of here. The word here, hope, is el pizzo. It means to look for something with confidence. And you find it in the present tense, which it's a present continuous. That's the way it's functioning there. So he had this consistent hope day after day. I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that I get out of here. So make it ready. So he, you, what you see here is he is directing his life by the hope that he carried. And that's that sets an example for us as believers that we have a hope in our heart, the return of Christ, that we are going to stand before Christ face to face one day or whatever hope that we may have. And that's that's great. But we're to direct our lives and order our steps and place an expectation uh, on our plans based upon the hope that we have. And you see Paul really living the life of faith while he's in prison. So I thought it was interesting that there's just that much in a simple verse like that, that I don't know if it was me that was in prison. I might be saying, I don't know how it looks uh uh, Philemon. I'm not sure if I'm getting out of here, so maybe I'll get there. Maybe I won't, but tell the family I said hi, you know, but he's instead saying, make plans because I'm getting out of here. Oh, Chris, that's so powerful. I, I have not mm-hmm. never focused on that. Um, 
you've done such nice work on reminding all of us of, <laughs> you know, he he's not speaking like I really, I've got my fingers crossed, I hope I see you, make room well, for me. He was speaking with tremendous faith and confidence. Yeah, I mean, he really has this, I mean, in the Greek, it really shines through, especially that present continuous where he says, I'm hoping. It's like, I'm hoping, hoping day after day, yeah. Monday to Friday to Saturday to Sunday. I know I'm getting out of here. Very strong faith language that he's using and uh, to be reunited with uh, people that he dearly loved. And he was writing to it. These believers were in Colossae at that time. So he knew them. He was well acquainted with them. Um, and it really shows just how, in, in another respect, how he was planning to be reunited with the family that he dearly loved, that served with him in ministry. And so I think that really speaks to people that are that are listening today that um, there may be a, an unfortuitous situation that they, they find in their lives, but if God has placed in their heart a hope, they can genuinely hold on to that hope with confidence, and they should go to the next step, and they should direct their future by that hope. And I think that's an act of faith, and that's exactly what Paul is doing there. And so maybe perhaps the book uh, will encourage people as they read not to just overlook small things. Uh, little details that are given to us, because I always say in the small in the small details, there are big discoveries that we can make. And I think that that speaks for that. Chris, let's dissect this just a little bit further. I think you're yeah. referring to verse 22, right? Yes. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope. Now, is the, uh, the let's just talk about the Greek in, in this verse, so we can, yeah. so you can point out, uh, again, the word that was used and what it meant one more time. Yeah, so the Greek word there for hope is, he says, for I am hoping. So it's, it's alpizo in the Greek. Alpizo. Yeah, yeah, but yep. So, and it comes from the Greek word alpiste. And I used to memorize this word in Greek class because the Greek word for hope is alpiste. And I used to always say, I hope to go see alpiste or Elvis. You know, and it kind of looks like Elvis. So mm-hmm. that's a that's a memory aid. Uh, but it's but it's not just the word because when people do Greek, sometimes they're always like, what's the Greek? What does the word mean in the Greek? Well, it means hope. It doesn't, there's no magical solution behind it. But Greek tenses are often very interesting. And the way that this tense is functioning um, is in the present tense. And so the present tense is good, but then you have to ask, what's the force of the present tense in this? And I would argue that it is a present continuous, which means that it is something he's continually doing. Um, and so that comes from understanding the Greek syntax that's in there. So it's a, it's a constant, persistent hope. He's saying, I'm hoping. It doesn't really make for good English. I don't think maybe why the translators left it out that way. Um, and then he, he tells them, you know, in this particular case here, um, to make ready to prepare. The Greek word here, prepare, as I said, is, uh, in, is in the imperative mood, which would be it's a command uh, specifically to do that. So he's, he's being very forceful. Mm-hmm. And so the, the whole the overall feel of this verse is Paul's really in faith. I mean, this is not something he's just thinking is going to happen. He expects this to happen. So it comes through. I love hearing that a second time. And... <laughs> Even when I said out loud El Pizzo, I knew now what I'm having for dinner tonight too. So this is this is kind of win win, Chris. <laughs> um, I love the Greek language, right? I love oh, it. I love it too. I love the Greek and <laughs> um, and would all this information be in the book that comes out in August? Because your explanation was brilliant, and I'm thinking, is that in print? And can I read that again and learn it a third time? That is in print. It is in print, and you can take it and preach it. And you know, I, was, I write these particularly for people that are doing Bible studies, or they're doing, uh, you know, a lot of Bible study leaders, or maybe people that are on YouTube, or they lead a Bible study on social yeah. media. They can take these and run I mean, with them. That Still is a them. that is a great devotional you just gave us. Well, praise God, I'm glad, and I like to take from places that aren't being used. I always try to go for those places that get overlooked because I think there's in every 
in every verse there's it offers to us yeah something yeah overlooked and maybe never thoroughly examined are those is that the same thing yeah. i would say it's the same thing yeah, yeah. i mean for sure yeah yeah all right uh, i think now's the time to take a break when we come back i'm going to demand yeah. more out of you just so you know all right bring it on all right chris palmer is my guest We'll uh, take a short break, and we'll come back, and we're going to talk more about strange verses in Scripture. We'll be right back. Palmer, the Reverend Chris Palmer, I should say. Um, and Chris, when I was looking on your one of your YouTubes, I don't know if over the course of the pandemic you decided to uh, grow your hair out and, and, sh- and not shave because you went from looking like the president of a fraternity to like a Hollywood A-list m- movie star. What happened? You know what? It was COVID. It was, it was COVID. You know, it was quarantine and it was starting to get a little long i i had been traveling i hadn't chopped it i said let's let's give this a try and then i got addicted to it and, and here i am with long hair that looks like uh i look like a hippie now so well, you look like a hippie hey. but it's a cool look i gotta be honest you know <laughs> well, you. you've got you've got several looks you can you can work off of so anyway both looks work i appreciate it yeah uh, chris well, has you, uh, got a new book coming out in august called strange scriptures deciphering 52 weird bizarre and curious verses from the new testament He's also authored seven books, uh, and you need to look them up and buy one, two, three, or all seven. Uh, one of my favorites is Greek Word Study, 90 Ancient Words That Unlock Scripture. So uh, I'm loving this time together, Chris. I'd love yeah. some more uh, possible excerpts from the new book coming out in August. All right, well, let's move to the book of Acts, because everybody likes the book of Acts. I think that's uh, an interesting. Uh, we, we study the first 30 years of church history and see how it, it went. Um, we see an odd verse. The Apostle Paul is in Ephesus. If you've ever had the chance to go or if you get the chance that the world ever opens up again, um, it's a, it really comes to life when you, you walk the streets there. And I found this one particularly interesting because it was a major city at that time when Paul built the church. and was probably his booming church. All the exciting things were happening in Ephesus because it was all, which were Africa and Europe and Asia all come together. So it was a really a melting pot of civilizations and religions and you had a lot of idolatry and paganism that was there a lot of syncretism um that was going on and so the apostle paul was no longer preaching in the synagogues every time he went the jews would reject would reject him but he had to continue preaching the gospel so he gets this idea that he's going to rent this hall so he meets this guy and his name is tyrannus now what's interesting about tyrannus is that that could not historians will will say that that can't possibly be his name because that word means tyrant nobody would ever name their son (laughs) tyrant (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, this is just, this is not his name. So it's believed that this was a nickname that his students would have given him because Tyrannus was a philosopher, and so he probably taught like a tyrant. You know, he's probably really exacerbated his students. And so um, he was maybe a, a thick-headed professor, and Paul rents this hall from him, and he's preaching the gospel. He, and the scripture tells us he preaches there for two years. And so the time that he would have preached, that you would have a meeting, was kind of an odd time. It would have been between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. And the reason is that is because very early in the morning is when um, people at that time went to work, and they would 
maybe when sun would come up, but they would take this siesta in the middle of the day and they would not open back up till about four o'clock with restaurants would open up or night merchants or whatever it may be. So Paul would preach between 11 and four in this, um, this school hall. Well, something very interesting says, it, it tells us that here in uh, chapter 19, nine to 12, um, that this continued for two years and all the residents of Asia heard the word of God, both Jews and Greeks, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and the diseases left them. So you see like handkerchiefs and aprons being used as a medium for healing at that time. Hmm. Um, and it's sort of, you know, what, what do handkerchiefs and aprons have to do? Well, get the picture in your mind. I mean, if it's 11 to 4 and the merchants and the different uh, leather workers and people that were blue collar workers at the time were, were coming and what, what would they have brought with them? They wouldn't have come walking in a tuxedo or a suit. They would have their work gear on. And the word here for aprons is talking about like the apron that a shopkeeper would wear, or maybe a metal worker would wear at that time. It wasn't like a handkerchief. They would anoint handkerchiefs and send them all over the place. It's not really that. It's an actual apron, something you might see, you know, a butcher wearing. And then it says that they also had their handkerchiefs. So this would actually be their sweat rags, what they would use to keep the sweat out of their eyes. And they were bringing these there. So this gives us a really interesting picture that you have these blue-collar workers that are using what they can. And, and notice it doesn't say that the Apostle Paul told them to do that. They were doing this out of their own response. So what it shows is that there's an awareness of the people that are coming to the Apostle Paul, and they're wanting to bring the gospel to the people in their communities, which I think is a beautiful thing because they did it on their own. And so you, what, what I think, what I say in the book is that you have this interesting element of God meeting workers where they're at because— it's not only the workers who are at work. God joins with the workers, and I say this is a, this this the title of this um, this study is called a blue collar type of God because He demonstrates Himself to be a blue collar God. So while the blue collar workers come to from work, God is rolling up His sleeves and He's partnering with these blue collar workers. And it's not just them that are working; God is getting in there and God is working with them, and He's using what they bring to Him to bring the work of the ministry and the work of Christ to the individuals that are in our community using the same thing that they're using in their jobs, and that is aprons and handkerchiefs. So it, sh- it kind of brings God down to earth for us, oh, so uh, if you will. It kind of shows, you know, it shows like a God who's not untouchable. He's not unreachable. He actually uses what we give. And so this really, I think, speaks for people that have this high and lofty idea of God, that he's just mm-hmm. really far above our ways. His ways are mysterious. I, I think he's a blue-collar type of God, and he'll use what we give him, and he'll use what we bring to him. That's that fan- makes sense. Yeah, that's fantastic, Chris. I like that. What is What, what in your study produced uh, one of your greatest moments of wow? You know, there is a lot of them. I think, um, you know, anytime you're dealing with something that's supernatural, supernatural I mean, there is, especially that particular verse where it talks about the legion, uh, in one of the Gospels where it says that Jesus cast the Jesus spoke to the, the man and asked him, what is your name? And he says, his name is Legion. And then Jesus cast the devil out of him. I think that's just really interesting because at that time, Roman legions were 6,000 men. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have this idea of it's not just the number, I think, that speaks about it, but it's the characteristic of the demons. I mean, the legions at that time were were the most feared, um, I guess, idea, most feared thought you could have if you were— a Judean. The Roman legions were disrespectful to the Jews. They didn't really curtsy to the Jews at all. 
Um, and they usually were known for raping women, pillaging towns, burning towns, killing children. I mean, they're just unjust and nobody really had authority over them because they were the authority. So when Jesus goes to this man, he says his name is Legion. It doesn't just talk about the number of demons. It's talking about how unclean this spirit was or this legion that had a hold of this man. But yet it bows down to Christ. It, it, it fears Christ. And it shows the quiet power that Christ had. Christ's authority wasn't something that he went around bragging about or saying he had it. I mean, it's kind of like he, 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 he spoke softly but carried a big stick, like <laughs> Churchill would say. And, they, and, and then he cast a demon out of it, and, it's go, and it goes into these pigs. One thing that I thought was interesting in the study I was doing is that at that time, if there was a phantasm or a demon that was come out of an individual, Greek philosophy would believe that it had there had to be some sort of physical um, manifestation that the demon had come out. And so you read in Greek, uh, Greek novels or Greek literature that when a demon is exercised, it usually knocks over a vase or a bookshelf falls over or something of that nature, but instead it goes into pigs. And so it produced a fear because at that time, the, the, the culture would believe that there was some sort of physical anomaly that takes place at that time um, mm -hmm. that a demon truly had been cast out. So you see all these pigs going crazy. Pigs were unclean at that time. It, it, it just kind of demonstrates the whole picture of what Christ is doing. And, and, and the whole thing goes to speak for Christ and who he is and his messianic identity, which is just truly amazing. Um, and uh, I think when I was looking at that, it just gave me pause to stop for a moment and worship because the Christ that we serve is, is kind and he's wonderful, but Demons fear him mm -hmm. because he's that he's that powerful. So he has, and he's the one that we serve. So if God has us, then the demons tremble at his name, and we can take confidence in that. Yeah, Christian, the title of your book, uh, "Strange Scriptures: Deciphering Fifty Two Weird, Bizarre, and Curious Verses." Have we covered one of each? A weird, a bizarre, and a curious. You know what? If if someone's listening, they say that's not curious enough, or that's not bizarre enough, or that's not weird enough. I, you know, I got nothing else for you. <laughs> oh my brother! They, they, my they brother, you've an interesting life. <laughs> you've covered all of them, my brother. We've got a couple a couple of minutes left. Is there one more little tease you can throw out? Well, you know, maybe I could just talk a little bit about the Greek language for a second, and, and sort of, you know, I think that. You know, there's if there's pastors that are listening or there's anybody that's doing any type of ministry at the serious level um, where they're influencing people. I just think maybe a rendezvous with Greek at some point would be good because, you know, we run to uh, Greek lexicons because we're looking for the meaning behind the word. But, I've, you know, in teaching Greek, I teach it at Moody Theological Seminary now. I have different Greek students, different places that I teach. Um, I try to challenge them to say it's not always the word that's going to give you the meaning. It's the syntax. It's the structure. It's really seeing how the language lays itself out. It's very rich in that regard because Greek doesn't have a word order, and there's a lot of emphasis that is nuanced in Greek that you don't really get in English. So, you know, I have a Greek-speaking friend who says that, you know, if you really want to read Scripture, you can read, pay attention to the rhythm and the way the prose is laid out. And that comes to life in Greek. And so I know that there are people that are much more busy and then they can't sit around and do Greek and, and study it, but... You know, that's what I've done in these books is to really appreciate the language, do my very best to make this a really simple study um, to the point where I can do all that work for you and give it in a way that you can understand. And so I think these would be beneficial. And hopefully in reading these, you say, hey, you know what, I, I want to learn some Greek. And, and you go and do likewise. So, Chris, you've created a, a very warm invitation to study Greek. Because uh, I think I most, people, so. most people would feel a little intimidated by Greek. And I think you've really done a nice job of of saying if you start studying this or 
they can even go on your website and listen to your podcast, can't they? Yeah, they can go on my website. They can listen to my podcast, chrispalmer.me. They can find everything that they want. And, uh, you know, if they like the books, I have different pastors, that, you know, traveling ministers, whoever, that are that come to me. And I, they're like, hey, Chris, can you give us something to preach? I'm like, sure. Let me give you some content. And so I build yeah. their content. So sometimes I hear them preaching. I'm like, that a boy, that a girl. That's, you know? Keep that, it up. Yeah, that's nice. Are you going to keep growing your hair? You know what? I actually just chopped it. I chopped half of it off. Okay. So I, I'm down in I'm down in Florida right now, and I couldn't take it with me. I had to leave the north and come south. So some of the hair had to go. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's good to know. <laughs> Chris, have a good time in Florida. Thanks for doing the show. Always good to talk to you. <laughs> Thanks, Reverend Chris. God bless you, Richard. Thank you so much. The Reverend Chris Palmer has been my guest. You can go to chrispalmer.me if you want to learn more about Chris. Or you can just Google him. He's got seven books, and I would recommend that you check them out. Take a little break. When we come back, we're going to wrap up our prayer series. This is the last Wednesday we're going to be doing prayer series. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are going to be looking over what we did the last six months, and we've got some clips from some shows, and we're going to talk about what's next. That's all coming up in a couple minutes. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.